Make your 4th of July sparkle with a little help from your friendly neighborhood Randalls. You'll find great deals on grilling favorites and more. Everything you need to make any summer gathering festive. For a delicious cookout, shop with your Remarkable card and pick up 80% lean ground beef in the value pack for just $1.99 a pound. Limit four packages. And get a sweet deal on fresh strawberries, blueberries, or raspberries, two for $3. Tastier meats, sweeter produce, better celebrations. Randalls, proudly serving Texas families since 1966. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Danny Uri, your host. So happy to have you with us for this episode. I want to do something a little bit different for the NBA Finals preview, and what it ended up being is three different short discussions with three very intelligent people. Kevin Pelton of ESPN, Adi Joseph of The Sporting News, and Ian Levy of Fansided. And so each of the conversations is 20 to 30 minutes talking about the series, and they go in some different directions. And also you can try to point through in different ones with telling the differences in my voice as I was getting over being sick. But first is Kevin Pelton of ESPN, great writer. Our conversation runs about 20 minutes. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Uh, excited to, to see you in person soon. Yeah, you're actually going to gonna make the trip down, and it, it's a very interesting finals to me because I think it will be so different from what we just saw both in the Western Conference Finals and the Eastern Conference Finals. And for that matter, probably very different from what we saw in last year's finals, even though it was the same two teams. Yeah, and the personnel is is a massive change because while Kyrie played in the first game and did really well, he was, of course, out of the series, but also because the replacements for those players were so different than they are. And, and all in the same way, where generally not the same kind of offensive ceiling, but better you know, defensive players who were more suited to play in the kind of grounded-out ball-control style that Cleveland adopted in last year's finals. Do you think that is overall a better thing, or, or is it maybe less of a positive than some people think? For them to have the additional talent this year? For them to have it with the reshuffle to less defense, more offense. I mean, in general, you know, I think you would rather, if, if you, if all other things are equal, you'd rather have the defense. You know, I've done some research into what wins in the finals, and better defensive teams have a better chance of pulling an upset as the uh, the team without home court advantage. But in this case, I don't think all other things are equal because I think they've improved more offensively than they've dropped off defensively. Yeah, I, I would definitely say that's fair, and. One of the most important parts of this series, and of course it's something you and I both love and, and Nate as well, is how these teams choose to use their personnel. So Channing Fry, and of course Kevin Love at center, and then lots of ideas for the Warriors as well. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see who kind of choreographs that dance. Because, you know, usually historically it's been Steve Kerr. It's been when he decides to go small, it's kind of dictated everything else. It felt like a little bit different in the Western Conference Finals where, you know, it was Billy Donovan who kind of proactively made the change to uh, go smaller in games three and four and have a lot of success that way. And then, you know, the, the response from Steve Kerr and the Warriors was actually to go bigger at first, but then finally to have success small on small in the last couple of games of the series with Steph Curry looking like himself. So, I, I don't know who in this series goes small first. Yeah, I don't know who goes first, but uh, 
something that I think you've looked into a little bit is how the Cavs look when Kevin Love plays center. Yeah, and I, you know, I think there's this perception that uh, until the playoffs, you know, the, the notion was, oh, they can't do this. It's too much of a drop off for them defensively, and that wasn't really supported by the numbers. And one particular flashpoint, because it's the main time everyone saw Love play at center, was you know the Christmas Day game in in Oakland against the Warriors, where. Cleveland lost that game, but it wasn't because of the fact that they went with Love at center down the stretch. That lineup actually played even with the Warriors, and you know they gave up some layups to Steph Curry where Love wasn't good enough as a help defender, but we also saw at the other end, LeBron got two dunks in, I think, the last three minutes of a close game because of the fact that Golden State just didn't have the ability to offer help because Cleveland had so many shooters on the floor, and you know ultimately, the Cavs, just as they took Love out at center, I think, was uh, when they were up they were down for rather inside the final minute with LeBron at the free throw line and he ended up missing both shots that's that ultimately was the difference in the game really yeah and there are a lot of reasons why for bits of time they can make that work because they do while Cleveland doesn't have a, a, a really deep perimeter rotation they have enough guys to make it work I mean Kyrie Delvadova Shump Smith, and because assuming LeBron plays, LeBron plays the four. That's enough to to make those lineups work as a change of pace or something like that. And you almost need to some extent to go small to get some of those guys on the court because you, you you're going to want Jr. Smith out there, I think, to finish games, and you're probably going to want one of Delavdova or Shumpert to defend Steph Curry late in games. So that that almost necessitates sliding LeBron down to power forward. And the other aspect of it, I think, is you know. As much of a concern as Love's defense is in those smaller lineups, it's a concern if he's playing power forward, too, because the Warriors are going to seek him out in the pick-and-roll and try to force the Cavaliers to trap those Steph Curry pick-and-rolls because they can't switch and they can't go under. Those those aren't realistic options. So if they do that, you know, if they're going to do that and, go and get the four-on-threes with Draymond Green either way, you're probably better off having the offensive advantage. Yeah, and the decision on trapping is going to be really important because who the Warriors decide to involve in those pick-and-rolls, because I'm assuming we'll actually see some meaningful minutes with Love guarding Harrison Barnes, and the Warriors haven't really put Barnes as the screener that much this season. We did see it notably, you know, I, I know I tweeted about this at the end of Game 6, where uh, Steph was calling over Barnes, rejecting Draymond Green screens to try to make sure that he got Serge Ibaka on him in the switch late in that in that game after he'd started to get comfortable with the notion of beating a bigger defender off the switch. So it'll be a little different here because obviously we're talking about trapping and Barnes hasn't historically been that guy making the read out of traps in the same way. Yeah, but it, it, you raise a larger point of who, who Love ends up defending. When he played center on Christmas Day, he was all over the place. He started out on Livingston because Livingston was in there instead of Barnes who was injured in that game. Then he played Draymond for a little while, and then he finished up on Iguodala. Yeah, and, and depending on what personnel Cleveland goes with, all of those could be possibilities in the finals. Right, so there, I think you know Cleveland will probably try out a few different things. It's interesting because the trap was sort of what was so effective for the Cavaliers early in last year's final, where you know we all remember Draymond looking tentative and uncertain about whether he should pull the trigger from three or drive into Timofey Mozgov in a fairly congested paint, or you know he just wasn't making those reads as well as we're used to him doing over the last couple of years. In particular, I think this season he's got even better at it. But uh, it's going to be a, a little different now because you don't have that Mozgov presence at the rim. He probably has a better setup for those four-on-threes this year than he did last year. How crazy is it that Mozgov played such a large role and is now 
largely out of it, despite not, I mean, he's hurt, but not being in this, in the same kind of way. Like there isn't really much of a precedent for that. He didn't get bumped by anybody. He just hasn't been as good. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, you wonder how much of it is him taking a step back because of that knee surgery he had last summer. And then how much of it is just the league getting faster and shootier. Is that a word? I, I don't, I don't know if that's a word, but I'm going I don't to... think it is, but it makes sense. Yeah. So all of those, you know, those elements, you think about, you know, what happened to a guy like Omer Ashik in New Orleans, similar situation where the bat, we don't know how much it was a bad, the back injury he had versus just the game changing and making life more difficult for players that out. But yeah, as recently as the matchup these two, two teams had on MLK Day, you know, a little bit over four months ago, Mozgov started that game and played the, the largest uh, portion of the minutes at center. And now I think it would be, I mean, I'm sure they'll try him at some point, but a little bit of a surprise if he played extended minutes, don't you think? Yeah, I, I think it would definitely be a surprise. And another guy who played in that Martin Luther King Day game was noted Game 7 hero Anderson Vergeau. <laughs> it was really amusing to see him playing against the Warriors. Uh, and playing such an important role in that game. He actually gave them a few good minutes at first, but then it seemed like they may have, have gone a little too long. And I had forgotten that in that game, you know, I knew that they played played Thompson at center with uh, James at power forward, which is not a lineup that has been particularly effective for them this season. But they also tried LeBron at center in that game, which I had forgotten. Wow. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it. What's, what's weird about that is that, uh, well, of course, they have Channing Fry now, is that I think their center options are better than that extra perimeter player in terms of stretching the floor. Like, they have, right. they have, better, they have better shooting fives than they do extra threes. Right, when they go small, it's actually probably more of a defensive play than it is an offensive play, which is not what you usually think of with smaller lineups versus bigger ones. So outside of the star players for each team, so let's say the top three, who is somebody that you're interested in as being a, a potential important player in this series? I think Sean Livingston, you know, he had such a, he was such a non-factor for most of the series against Oklahoma City because of their size and the way that they can take away his post-up game. But, you know, I think Cleveland has been a pretty favorable matchup for him last year's finals and then this year during the regular season. So I, I think he goes for, takes on much more importance in this series. I think that's a general theme for me with the difference between Oklahoma City and Cleveland is I of, of course Cleveland is a very good team that has done a very impressive run through the playoffs you've written well about that recently but Oklahoma City is just a nightmare for the Warriors they're there are a lot of freaks they're they played with better energy than I think they ever have for the last three weeks of the playoffs and I think at a point the Warriors are just going to be breathing there and just saying thank goodness that they don't have to face them anymore Absolutely. I thought that was a strong point that you made on Dunked on the other day. The The interesting question to me is how much Cleveland can turn it up defensively, how much they were coasting, you know, because of the fact that their offense is playing so well and they were often playing against overmatched opponents in the first three rounds. How much more can they turn it up defensively if LeBron is able to bring better effort at that end on a regular basis? You know, J.R. Smith already has been playing pretty well. Uh, Kyrie Irving, you know, we've, it's been talked about how well he, he defended Steph Curry in game one of last year's final. I mean, that's one game. That's not a full series. But there's, I think, the potential, you know, someone like Love, it's more of a physical thing than it is, you know, an effort thing for him. So I don't know how much better he can get defensively or Channing Fry, similar. But some of the perimeter players, I think, can defend better. And one of the most interesting stats I, I found in researching this matchup, so the Christmas Day game that these two teams played, uh, we've on ESPN been, been looking at uh, shot quality 
in this playoffs, uh, including quantified shot probability is what I like to use because that takes into account not only the location of the shot and the location of the nearest defenders, but also who's shooting the ball. And uh, by that measure, the Christmas Day game was the Warriors' second-worst shot quality of the season when Steph Curry played. That's really interesting. And, of course, it's all attributable to Harrison Barnes not playing. <laughs> I mean, they definitely had some funky rotations in that game. I mentioned on Twitter the, uh, last night that James McAdoo and Ian Clark were in there together in the fourth quarter, which I'm, if we see that in this series, I'm pretty sure one team is going to be ahead by 20 points. Yeah, Clarkadoo and Spatesadoo are probably not going to be parts of this series. But at the same point, Steve Kerr has this amazing comfortability with playing guys who should not be involved in, in this series, and, and this was true in the Western Conference Finals, and more than half the time, it ends up working. It makes me feel like an idiot. <laughs> I mean, the Vergeau Barbosa stint at the end of the third quarter of Game 7, well, it's a legendary, uh, uh, seemingly bad process, great results uh, decision in, in the coaching annals. But, you know, I think that... Besides the kumbaya Kerr uh, approach, as, as Nate Duncan has coined, uh, I think that the other thing that Kerr likes about that probably, you know, I think thinking specifically about the second quarter stints where they have have the three all-stars on the bench, which I'm not sure they'll do in this series because LeBron is so amazing. But I think one of the things he loves about that is, like, if, if you do get hot, if most Bates makes a couple of baskets and you win that segment, that's like a crushing blow to the opponent because that's the point where they feel like they have to make up ground. And if they don't, suddenly they're, they're forced to try to do it against your stars. That's a great point, and also, I'm somebody who believes that the Warriors' best players really function well together. This is actually a difference with some other teams. Like I'm a firm, firm believer that the Thunder did a great job staggering Russ and KD, because I think they work together a little bit worse. Curry and Clay and Draymond, I think, all function better together, so if you can have them sit at the same time, the reason you want to do that is that it allows them to play together more, because if you do a stagger, then you're cutting out minutes on both ends. For sure, yeah. And uh, we also saw the benefit in terms of Kerr's committed to getting those guys rest, and it seemed to pay off late in Game 6 and, and then in Game 7. You know, there was probably at some point a cumulative fatigue effect of the additional minutes that the Thunderstars were playing. So it'll be interesting to see what LeBron James's workload looks like in this series. You know, we saw Teron Liu start riding him pretty hard in the last couple of games at Toronto, you know, in the, in the idea, with the idea there that, okay, if we end this series, Series, he can rest between then and the finals. So will he go back to that in this series, or does he try to keep LeBron better rested? I don't think he can afford to keep LeBron better rested. I think this could be a parallel to the Rockets series last year, not the one this year, where the Cavs do a pretty good job when LeBron's in the game and then just get massacred when he's off the floor. It's weird because a team with Kyrie Irving and Kevin Love should be effective offensively even without LeBron. And just for some reason, you know, the two of them individually have never had quite that, that chemistry that I think we expected when this group uh, first formed a couple of years ago. Well, there were those segments, I think it was the first half of this season, where the Cavs actually seemed like they went on runs all the time with LeBron out. But I think most of those were against teams that weren't as good. <laughs> yeah, that's fair to say. They were not against the Warriors. They were not against the Warriors. And I'm... I'm really interested in this series also because there's there's so much just kind of intensity on it, but I'm not sure that that's going to lead to better play. Like, these are both teams that have can have weird defensive lapses. Like, the Warriors are obviously great defensively, but one of the big differences with last year is just that they do lose guys. Like, Draymond Green lost Robertson on a few back cuts and things like that, and 
but both of these teams are so good at exploiting those mistakes. Right, and I think one of the big things that we've seen as a difference for the Cavaliers in the playoffs and maybe a focus since Lou took over is you know, their ball movement has been just much better and I think of leading to you know, better looks for them than they got during the regular season when the ball did tend to stick at times. Yeah, and I, I, I think that the Cavs, one of the nice things for them is on overall they've looked a lot better from week to week over the playoffs, which is always nice to see. Yeah, it's just, I, I don't know that they can, they certainly can't get any better offensively, I don't think, but uh, lots of room for that at the defensive end. If the Warriors are ending games with the death lineup, which I think we both expect, what five would you have out there if you were coaching Cleveland? My my plan A, at least, my plan to start the series would be Love, LeBron, JR, Kyrie, and then I'm I'm in somewhat indifferent between Shumpert and Delavadova. I think that might depend on who's playing well with those two and just kind of how the matchups are shaking out. But uh, I guess I'd if I had to pick one of them, I'd say Shumpert. Yeah, I'd probably say Shumpert too, just because that gives you a little bit more size matching. So you know, depending on how they're going to do it, because. Clay Thompson, I think, is is a much better player now than he was last year. Of course, he was also finding his. He was a little bit, I don't know, lacking in terms of confidence during that series. Trump did a great job on him, and you can do more with Trumper with that than Del Vadova. And I think Kyrie. You know, if I were putting Kyrie on Curry or Clay, I would rather put him on Curry. Yeah, I think of those two guys, that's that's probably the right way to go. I mean, that's going to be a problem for you in terms of you know the pick and roll, but that's probably going to be a problem with Steph no matter what. Yeah, I keep thinking about the fact that the Warriors in the in the Thunder series did such a great job capitalizing when they had the starters in against Kanner. Actually, they did a horrible job when the backups were in against Kanner of yep. basically playing him off the floor. And Cleveland cannot get those guys off the floor. They're too important. I mean, theoretically they can, but, you know, they... They bring a lot more offensively, I think, than even Cantor does, at least against, you know, the Warriors starters. He, against most Bates, he brings a lot. Uh, the other interesting question to me, uh, I don't think we've heard a lot about is, you know, how Cleveland offensively attacks the death lineup. And, you know, the Warriors, at least against the Cavaliers in the regular season, switched basically every pick. Uh, at least every one ball pick with that lineup on the court like they did at the end of the Western Conference Finals but did not do earlier in it. That meant that, you know, Cleveland is not going to get any, you know, some of the things off the pick and roll that they've gotten with, like, LeBron is a roll man going to the rim for lobs or, you know, Channing Frye or whoever the shooter is, the big man on the weak side, open threes because of the fact that his defender has to come down to help against the pick and roll. But what it does mean is the Cavaliers can basically pick their matchup and attack it one-on-one. And I guess the question is, what do you think is their most favorable possible one-on-one matchup in that scenario? LeBron against whoever's on LeBron. <laughs> really, that's it. Like, I, mean, Ky- I mean, Kyrie can do a good job. I think Ky- Clay's going to be on Kyrie most of the time. And, and I think that, you know, Kyrie will do a nice job. I think he his handle is just hard to deal with. And there are some issues. Clay has had some issues with James Harden that I actually think are parallel in Kyrie, just that they're so unusual and they're so good at what they do that he can have a little bit more trouble with that. But considering how well he's defended in the playoffs, I'm a little bit less concerned about that than I was before. And the other difference is that LeBron is just, to me, he's the best passer of his generation, regardless of size, regardless of position. And that means you can't double, you can't do anything, so you're going to have to attack that in a very different way, and that is where the switching is going to really go, is that you spend the first 10 seconds of the shot clock getting 
whoever that person is, you know, probably, I think a lot of times it'll actually be Harrison Barnes, though he does well against bigger dudes, but just Harrison is not Draymond Green and not Iguodala. And so you can see him get that, and then you see LeBron do something on him one-on-one for eight seconds and then create a seam and then make a shot with like five seconds on the shot clock. Yeah, and that's what's going to make this series different than last year is because even when the Warriors were forced into those kind of switches last year, you know, they could bring help because there were there were non-shooters on the court. There were guys that you could help off of. And that's going to be, I think, Cleveland's biggest upgrade in this series is when it's small versus small, they, there are not those kind of places that the Warriors can provide help from. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we do predictions? I think that pretty much covered it. So what's your prediction? So, like, uh, it has obviously become trendy. I picked Warriors in six, and now I'm, I'm given the fact that everyone picked it, I'm, I'm thinking I probably should have gone with uh, Warriors in a home game. So, we're, okay, so you want to say Warriors in a home game. Nate said when we recorded our preview that he thought it was more likely to go four than seven. Do you agree with that? Uh, I think it's more likely to go five than seven. I wouldn't go far, so far as to say more likely to go four than seven. I, th- I think Cleveland's going to get hot and win a game at some point. Yeah, I, I would be shocked if Cleveland got swept in this series. But anywhere between five and seven, you know, I, it wouldn't surprise me. The reason why I think six is the most likely is that I don't think home court matters that much in the series. The Warriors have an ability to lose home games. Like, that's something that has happened before in the playoffs, you know, against good teams. And there is no aura about Cleveland for this Warriors team. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. I mean, obviously, that's what they closed out in last year in a, in a different scenario. But uh, it, it just feels, I think Nate said something similar to this, it just feels like the Caps have two wins in them where they get hot. Yeah, that's, that sounds like a reasonable number to me. And I don't know, It's part of me wants to say I'm underselling Cleveland just because they do have so much talent. But I just think they match up so poorly against the Warriors. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I think, you know, I, I would have had probably Cleveland as the favorite against Oklahoma City had they won the series as impressive as the Thunder's previous two rounds had been. But against Golden State, yeah, I, I, it's, a, it's not a matchup they wanted, clearly. Yeah, that's just the way it goes sometimes. Yeah, I'm sure they were really happy when it was 3-1 because also they would have had home court. Yeah. But that's the way it goes. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Always a pleasure. Thanks again to Kevin Pelton for taking the time to come on. You can, of course, read him at ESPN Insider, and you can follow him on Twitter at kpelton. Next up is Deputy Editor of the Sporting News and my boss, Adi Joseph. He's a great guy to talk to you about this, and our conversation runs for this one runs about a half an hour. Glad to have you on again. Yeah, glad to be back. So we, we're coming off of a pretty spectacular Western Conference Finals, and Cleveland is closer to substantially closer to full strength than they were a year ago in this rematch. What are your kind of general thoughts as we as we head into this NBA Finals? First of all, let me just say, all right, I'm gonna sound like a hater here. I'm gonna probably sound like a hater for this entire podcast, so I'm warning you people, don't at me. But. <laughs> Uh, I didn't think the Western Conference Finals were quite as good as build. There were several bad games. There was some sloppy play in that in Game Seven in, in a in a game that for the first half was really remarkable. The fourth quarter was really sloppy, and um, the Warriors are a team that I think it was Ethan Strauss who said usually their best shot is what we always consider ill-advised, like the best shot that the Warriors have is Steph taking a really dumb three. And so when games devolve into sloppiness, that's when Draymond Green is at his most effective, and that is when Stephen Curry is at his most effective, and you're just not going to beat the Warriors like that. And that's, I think, in a way how they 
they uh, won that series was was turning it into sloppiness. And that's what I'm worried about for the finals is the Cavs have been trying to run all over the place, throw passes, crazy passes that, you know, LeBron James can get away with, but J.R. Smith and Kyrie Irving maybe shouldn't. Opened up the court and, and, and they're, they're doing all these things and, and I'm, I'm worried because you can't do that against the Warriors and that doesn't work against the Golden State Warriors of the Steve Kerr era. And I have a, a feeling that this could, could be an ugly series where the Warriors just run them off the court with that incredibly high-paced, beautiful ugliness of plays breaking apart and shots that look like the worst thing you've ever seen but then go in. That's that. That's my fear uh, as, I, as we enter the playoffs. It, it's just an ugly series that the, the Warriors dominate. It's certainly a possibility. Cleveland's offense has, has really succeeded, though there are some good indication. I really like Kevin Pelton's piece that came out on Tuesday about the kind of the nature of the Cavs' success so far in the playoffs, but the Warriors do have better personnel to attack Cleveland offensively as much as anyone can, you know, when they're stretching out and doing all doing everything that they do. But you're right that it could very well devolve into that. I actually think that Oklahoma City did an amazing job of basically making that the only way the Warriors could survive. And the Warriors just happen to be the right. team that can do that. That's the difference between the Warriors and the Spurs, is that the Spurs just don't have the guys to, to when it gets into that, to, to make it happen reliably enough. And the Warriors did, in, you know, by making some crazy shots. I think I wrote about this for The Athletic, but the third quarter was insane because the Thunder got substantially better looks than the Warriors did. They just didn't go in as much. And the Warriors went had like a 10-plus advantage in that quarter. So you are going to see things like that at moments. But I think that this series will be a reminder of, oh, yeah, the Warriors can actually execute. They just can execute when they don't have to face Kevin Durant, Serge Ibaka, Stephen Adams, Russell Westbrook, and every other guy that, well, the other two guys that the Thunder threw at them. Where I'm kind of going with with my line of, of thought is the Warriors executing in itself is not what the Spurs executing looks like. It's not what the, you know, peak efficiency 2013 heat executing looks like. It's not, you know, let's take a really basic team. The, when the Detroit Pistons are executing, it is the most basic, say, almost the same play every single time. It is a Reggie Jackson, Andre Drummond pick and roll that ends in either a dunk, a kick out three, or, uh, you know, crafty but still fairly safe Reggie layup or pull up. And, for the Warriors, when they're executing perfectly, it's because the ball is zipping all over the place and Steph is zipping all over the place and he's, you know, twisting his arms in weird contortions before shots. And that's the Warriors executing the way they want to execute. It looks fun and it looks like something that you could never do on your own. Just if you asked me to play the Harrison Barnes role and all I had to do was just roll into the corner and wait, I, there's no way that I could even catch the pass that Steph throws to me. So that's where I think that they're a little different than most teams is they, they thrive on that chaos. And the Cavs, their playing style is just, it's not chaotic, but it could lend itself. A few batted balls, you know, Draymond gets into a rhythm where he's knocking passes away. Steph steals a couple. And the next thing you know, you're trying to run. You can't run against the Warriors, and that's what I'm worried about. And I think the Cavs might 
be better inclined to to switch their playing style up as successful as they've been in the playoffs. Yeah, they definitely aren't going to be able to to run with the Warriors in the way that Oklahoma City could, and honestly, I don't think any other team could in that way. And Cleveland is going to have to make some major decisions in terms of who they actually have on the court because yep. they have a lot of really good basketball players, but certain guys will be exploited. And something that I think Kerr deserves a lot of credit for overall, though there were some moments where this wasn't true, of zeroing in in these last two playoffs on opponents who do something very badly and just making sure that happens a lot. I was very critical of the way that the Spurs attacked or didn't attack Ennis Canner. They put him on post-ups, which he's not bad at, instead of putting him in space and having him defend pick-and-rolls. The Warriors will just do that constantly, partially because their nature of their offense is generally to screw with other teams, but they can specifically focus on those players. And while Cleveland has much better talent this year, they also have much more exploitable talent because Kyrie, Kevin Love, Channing Frye, are all players that the Warriors can zero in on on, on half-court defensive possessions. Yeah, and let's not forget that last year, Amon Chumpert was the starting shooting guard, and he was playing really terrific basketball. This year, Amon Chumpert is the backup because he's he's been struggling all season since he came back, and JR is JR, and, you know, that's... Let's put it this way. If JR can play as as good defense as Dion Waiters, I'd be stunned. <laughs> yeah, and especially in, in the idea of how much movement and, and defensive intelligence and activity the Warriors create. Like, Waiters did a nice job of staying in his lane and doing that, but the if the Warriors go with the mentality that I thought they, they ended up going with with Portland for the most part, which was make them work for a longer stretch of the possession and somebody will screw up. I think Cleveland fits that bill substantially more than Oklahoma City did because Oklahoma City did a great job of scrambling. Yeah, and and I, I'd also say, you know, to your point, there are a lot of bad defenders who almost need to be on the court for the for the Cavs. And then on top of that, the guy who was one of the most effective players for them last season in the finals, Timofey Mozgov, and again Shumpert, who basically locked down Clay for all but one game. Those two guys have just struggled this season. So you're going to have to see Teron Lu make some serious decisions about two players who were projected starters to begin the season and whether he still trusts them enough in those roles. Because I, I really think for the Cavs to win this series, they are going to need a real contribution from Mozgov and a, a much higher level contribution from Shumpert. Um, and then on top of that, they're gonna they're gonna need to figure out how and when they can go small against a team that you can't usually go small against. And the personnel decisions for both teams are gonna run into each other because my feeling is that Bogut and Festus Azili in particular, who are the only two non Draymond centers who should play in this series. That Whoa. Mo money, mo problems. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that, that, that is the whole issue. And so I think that Azili and Bogut should only be in when the Cavs have a traditional center in, because when Channing Frye is the only big, let's say, or if it's Frye and Love, then you get into the problems with those guys defending in space. And especially if Shump is not on the floor, there isn't really a place to hide those players. And so the benefit that you're getting from their rebounding, from their instincts and all that kind of stuff, isn't there. However, I am incredibly excited to see 
Tristan Thompson and Festus Azili battle for rebounds on both ends, which was not a big part of last year's finals because Azili was still coming back, but could be not a big part of this finals, but, uh, you know, like a fun five minutes a couple times a series. Didn't we already see, though, that Tristan, haven't we seen all season, really, that Tristan struggles against opposing centers who put their focus on the same things he does? And are bigger because everyone's bigger. Biombo killed him because Biombo didn't care about playing offense. He cared about grabbing rebounds. He didn't care about you know he 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 stayed around the rim. That was he he even went out and frankly did a spectacular job occasionally on switches, but and and, and guarding LeBron at times. But that's where I worry. Like I I don't know that Tristan Thompson is big enough for the Warriors starters. Like Bo, I mean not starters but true centers Bogut and. Uh, Festus, I don't know that he's – I think he's going to struggle with them. And Mozgov was terrific. Mozgov played Andrew Bogut right out of the starting lineup. And I don't think Tristan Thompson can play Andrew Bogut out of the starting lineup unless the Cavs are still hitting 43% from the three, as they have done in the playoffs, which, by the way, the Warriors have the, the second-best three-point defense in the NBA. So how are they going to keep that pace up? And – if they don't do that, can Thompson really effectively make himself such a weapon against Bogut that, that he, he dr- drives Bogut off the court? And another big problem for the Cavs is that they just don't have good help defenders. And no matter what you're doing against the Warriors, you're going to need help defense. That's just the nature of the beast. And Cleveland, when you get past that first line of defense, I mean, a lot of times it's Kevin Love, who's distinctly terrible at that. He's good at some other things, but he's terrible at that. Fry is okay. Thompson is solid. I I think he's a little bit underappreciated in that way. But so when the Warriors do create separation, not at the three-point line, they're not going to be running into the thicket that they were against the Thunder. And at the same time, the other way, while Cleveland uses a, a help in a different way, you know, like they attack in a different way just because they can spread the floor so well, the Warriors do have personnel when they try to get to the interior to just make sure that doesn't happen. I think we're of a, in, in agreement, maybe too much of agreement, that the Cavs match up poorly against the Warriors. And everyone, you know, look, my main reason for arguing, I, I thought entering the playoffs, the Spurs were a tougher matchup for the Warriors and the Thunder would be for one reason only, and that is coaching. And then Billy Donovan blew me away the last two series. But everyone knew coming in that personnel-wise, the Thunder were a tough matchup for the Warriors. The Thunder, the Jazz, the Bucks, and a couple of maybe one or two other teams in this league are just loaded with big, long, athletic guys at every position. And that's what the uh, that's what the Warriors struggle most with, and that's not the Cavs. The Cavs are going to be smaller than the Warriors, and I don't, I really don't like the idea of being smaller than the Warriors against them. I think that's a really good point, and so if you're thinking about this series, outside of the All Stars, because of course they're going to get all the attention, and they deserve it. They're going to be important. Whoa, All Stars and Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving. So yeah, but <laughs> outside of the high profile players, if you want to put it. That way. <laughs> Who is somebody that you think is going to have a big impact on this series? I mean, Andre Iguodala is a silly answer, right? Obviously, Andre Iguodala. But I, it, let's, I'll pick someone from, from the Cavs, and I'll say, I, I, like I said, I, I think if the Cavs have any success, Amon Chumpert is going to wake up 
Amon Shumpert is going to start playing the best basketball he's played all season. If, if he doesn't do that, they probably aren't going to have any success. And Shump did a tremendous job in the finals last year of making it his mission to limit Clay. You need to limit Clay. As the Thunder found out, Clay is the, when Clay gets hot, things get real bad. You are not beating the Warriors when Clay is hot. So, I think Shumpert's going to have to take that on his on on again, and he's going to have to try to step his his offensive performance up to the level that he can be trusted because he's a much better fit to guard Clay Thompson than J.R. Smith or Kyrie Irving is. And uh, you know, I'm sure when Delavadova's in, they're probably going to try if if plays, you know, 23, 24 minutes a game, they're probably going to all be against Curry. If they're smart, at least if if, if Ty Lue is smart. He's going to try to match Delavadova against Curry as much as possible. That means that, you know, Shump needs to be sort of in that same shadowing role, not playing as many minutes as, as Clay, but all of the minutes he plays on the court are against Clay. To me, that's a very strategically sound ideology for how to defend the Warriors is, is to come up with your players who match up best against those two and start there. I agree with your logic, and that's also the reason why I think J.R. Smith is going to be so important is because I think Lou is going to lean more towards the guys who got him there, at least early in the series. And J.R., you know, he's done very well in the playoffs, He's and he's been better defensively. Still not great, of course, but, but better. And he and Kyrie are going to draw these just brutal assignments that they didn't have to deal with nearly as much, much last year. Kyrie, of course, because he, he only played one game, did a pretty good job in that one game. But... JR is going to have to play the series of his life for Cleveland to win this. And of course, LeBron is, is the alpha and the omega with them. But the Cavs have a lot of kind of fail safes, like guys who, if they have a bad series, they're just not going to win. And I think JR, of the guys that are eligible for this question, is probably first and foremost in that group. He's more, I mean, he pro- you're probably right. In my idealized version of what the Cavs do, I if I were in Ty Lushi, I probably would have been playing Shump more for the entire playoffs. So it's it's uh, it's not really fair for me to impose that on what actually happened. But I'm going to say something maybe a little unfair, but I don't care. DeMar DeRozan and Kyle Lowry had, without a doubt, their best postseason series against the Cavs. And they are not the Splash Brothers. They are not. <laughs> they are not the Splash Brothers. So when you have... DeRozan and Lowry shooting like 49% from the field and killing you and taking you to six games with very little offensive help from anyone else in their team. That worries me because we already know that J.R. Smith and, and Kyrie Irving are not good defenders. And now they're going against the Splash Brothers. And Lowry and DeRozan probably were the second best backcourt in the NBA this season. They were not the Splash Brothers. And it wasn't close. And, uh, I mean, th- those two are significantly. Uh, yeah, Lowry is three inches smaller than Curry, and DeRozan is probably an inch or two smaller than Clay. They don't shoot nearly as well. In fact, De- DeRozan didn't even hit a three pointer against the Cavs. So it's a scary possibility to imagine a world where you're going to consistently start games with JR and Kyrie matched up against Steph and, and Clay, and you potentially run the risk of hot starts for the Warriors consistently, but even more so in the third quarter. And we know the Warriors are great in the third quarter, and they bury teams in the third quarter. 
and you let JR and Kyrie play the third, start the third quarter together, I would worry a lot about Steph and Clay coming out of the locker room and making four point games into 14 point games very quickly. That's a really good point. And something on a more human element that I think about with a series like this is for both teams, but I would say more for Cleveland, sometimes it gets really hard to execute offensively when you're struggling so much defensively because you're just getting you're getting mad somebody's blowing a switch somebody's doing something else and the Warriors create so much stress and strain on every opponent you know you the story has basically been for the last couple years that you have to play a perfect game to beat them and I would say in some ways Oklahoma City is the exception to that just because they have guys who are dominant in, in similar ways but the Warriors do it in a team perspective and so Cleveland has really good talent, but they don't have players that are really great at playing perfectly. Yeah. Now, I mean, all right, so we're, we're being very negative, so I'm going I'm to switch my, uh, my good cop, bad cop hat around, and I will say this. Kyrie Irving is extremely talented, and he has played very well for most of these playoffs. And LeBron is an improving motivator. I'm not going to call him elite. I don't, I still, I, I still to this day think the, you know, Dwayne Wade was the, the mental fortitude of those, those, uh, heat teams, but LeBron will, will make sure that he and, and, and Ty Lu, he and Ty Lu will both make sure Kyrie and JR are not consistently in position to fail. They're not going to do that. If that means that LeBron has to pick up Steph, I think that might happen. Um, or more often than the last possessions of games. If that means that LeBron has to pick up Draymond so that he can switch on to Steph on every pick and roll, I think that could happen. Uh, they're not going to, they're not simply going to allow their bad defenders to be put in consistently bad positions because at the very least, whether you think Tyron Lue is a better coach than Dave Blatt, whether you think he's a good coach at all, he's at least proven to be a, a competent coach throughout these playoffs and, and put his players in the right position. Yeah, that's definitely true. He has, and as as you mentioned before with Shump and Delvadova, they have players who can mitigate some of those downsides. And Kyrie is a wonderful player, and also the cumulative defensive assignments, because I assume that Clay is going to start games on, on Kyrie and probably spend most of the time on him, of going from Lillard to Westbrook to Kyrie Irving, uh, that's just an, an insane sequence for a guy who's not a natural point guard. You forgot, well, he played James Harden in the first round, too, so you're right, and Clay is one of the best point guard defenders in the league, which is why he consistently gets switched on to them like that, whether uh, I don't, it also is a big factor in Steph being a particularly good off-the-ball disruptive defense defensive player because his hands are so good which could really neutralize how often they want to kick the ball out to J.R. Smith because the worst-case scenario is to throw a kick-out pass and have Steph Curry in the open court before you blink. And that happens a lot, and that happened a lot against the Thunder late in games where Russell Westbrook or Kevin Durant or even Andre Robertson would try to do something they shouldn't have done, and the next thing you know, Steph has the ball, and he's leading a fast break, and... Steph fast breaks end in three-pointers, unlike everyone else in the whole league. So that's a killer, and that could really neutralize JR, and it'll be interesting to see how they can even use JR in this series. 
yeah, I'm really excited to see, as you said, how, how different players are used and how the rotations work because Cleveland has found some lineups that have done extremely well in this playoffs, albeit against different competition, but they've done it against, you know, the Hawks, who were a, a very strong defensive team throughout the year. And to see whether those things work against the Warriors and whether the Warriors trying some other things, whether any of those work against Cleveland. I think my favorite thing that they tried quite a bit, I don't, I shouldn't say this isn't certainly the first time they've tried it, but against the Thunder, they really, really let even Harrison Barnes more, more, maybe, maybe I'm misreading this, but it seemed like more often than normal, Harrison Barnes and uh, Andre Iguodala for sure. And it wasn't just Draymond and Steph bringing the ball up every single time. It was whoever gets it other than the center, other than the traditional centers they have. Uh, you know, Clay even brought the ball up more often than he typically does. And I think if you're the Cavs, you don't like that because it, you, you want to be set. You want to know what your pick and roll switches are going to end up being. And if the Warriors can get things going to where when especially when they have that small ball lineup out there and they can roll any kind of pick and roll they want on you and they start getting Kevin Love into positions that he doesn't want to be in uh, defensively, that could be really dangerous for, for, the, uh, for the Cavs. And by letting a player like Harrison Barnes, who I imagine is going to be Kevin Love's uh, most common assignment, at least in important possessions, by letting him bring the ball up and enabling him to do that, even though, yes, he is absolutely the worst player on the court for the Cavs during big moments, um, they, they're potentially creating some situations where the Cavs have to look and wonder if their matchups are right and, and do we switch before we even get into our set um, just to avoid that situation where one switch leads Kevin Love on Steph Curry, which is just a nightmare. And something along those lines that will be fascinating is – we could see some cross-matching and different defensive assignments on both ends of the floor. And where that really matters is transition defense. Because so like when one team gets the ball and does it, is the, is the, is the team that's running back going to figure out who they should get and then be able to eventually get into a normal set? It's going to be really interesting. Yeah, and, and the Warriors take advantage of that way better than anyone else. This is becoming a very pro-Warriors podcast. It it's is. almost like it's almost like they didn't almost get taken to the you know get taken to the brink by a fifty three win team. Yeah. <laughs> well, so we'll end we'll end this on just a basic question, which is, what do you think happens? What's the final result? You know, uh, like like I wrote for Sporting News, I think it's a five game series. I'm I'm down on this finals and being you know particularly great. It's a great storyline finals. It really is. Either team winning is a tremendous all time great storyline, but. I think, in all honesty, the Thunder match up so much better than the Cavs do against the Warriors. Curry and Clay appear to be on, on track again, and they just won three games in a row against a team that basically matches up perfectly against them. And now they're going up against a team that matches up horribly against them. And, and so, I, I, yeah, I would say I'm pretty squarely on the, the five-six game. Six would be a, a good result for the Cavs. Um, I have said since the beginning of this season, but really since the beginning of the playoffs, no team should ever... It's not quite the Bill Russell Celtics where you could just... There was no such thing as choking against the Bill Russell. Jerry West went to nine finals and lost to the Bill Russell Celtics most of those times, and I'm never going to hold those against him. And that's how I feel right now about this Warriors team. 
73 win team, you can't hold it against them. It's sort of like the Jordan Bulls. It's sort of like the Russell Celtics. You can't hold it against the Cavs. You can't call LeBron a choker right now the way the way this uh, this Warriors team's played. If the Cavs lose this series, they have lost to a superior team, and it is even even if the Warriors had it, had an injury. And I mean, we all hope that both teams stay completely healthy. I think that you could make an argument that the Warriors are still a better team or close to it. I mean, they played phenomenally when Curry missed extended time with the MCL injury and even before that with the ankle issue. And I'm leaning Warriors in six on the logic that the Cavs are a high-variance team. And if you give them, you know, five rolls of the dice, I think that a couple times they'll just hit a bunch of shots. But I agree with you on the substance that in terms of personnel and fit, I think it could be that way. And, And the other part to consider with this is that I think that the the Warriors will get in their own way a little bit with rotation sometimes, and Cleveland will do the same, but I think the Warriors have a nasty penchant for doing it at at games when the margin is tight. I think that's a big part of what happened in Game 1 of the Thunder series, and I think that could bite them at some point early as well. So who's your pick for Finals MVP? Curry. Who should have won won last year? Oh, I disagree. But um, I'll, I'll leave my... Andre actually deserved it rants for a different day. And I'll say, I actually think Clay will, will win MVP. And I think a big part of that is what I was saying about Shumpert. If Shumpert's only playing 17 minutes a game, then they're not going to be able to stop Clay Thompson. And when Clay is sizing up a bad matchup against him, he often tends to just go crazy. Let's think about that 37 point quarter and remember that that was against the Sacramento Kings, the team that drafts a that drafts a shooting guard every single year. So, you know, it's uh, Clay seizes matchups. Curry dominates regardless, but Curry loves when Clay is taking the pressure off him. And that, that happened in the Thunder series, and Clay was the better player. And Clay probably has been, you know, even when even in the 11 games that Curry's played, Clay has been probably as good or better in half of those at least. So I, I feel pretty good about what Clay Thompson is doing right now. And if 2014 and the, the FIBA World Cup and him getting that extension and the Kevin Love, you know, trade that didn't happen. If that was Clay Thompson's moment of people being like, oh, Clay Thompson's good, uh, this will be Clay Thompson's moment where people say, oh, Clay Thompson is great and probably going to the Hall of Fame. One more question because you, what you said about Clay inspired it. Who would, if they gave, a, a, the equivalent is, is the Smythe in hockey, if they gave a, an MVP for the entire playoffs so far, who would you pick for the entire league for this this stretch for the first Oh, year? LeBron James. Yeah, I think it's LeBron. <laughs> it's got to be LeBron. It's LeBron, and then I think Clay's second. Yeah, I agree. Which is I mean, incredible. I, yeah, it's it's got to be LeBron, though. I mean, let's not forget that they're 12-2 and two right now, and there have been stretches in that Raptor series in particular where LeBron was the only Cav really playing well. So, uh, you know, Kevin Love is shooting under 40% from the field. Kyrie has been very good, but JR has been up and down and LeBron is just LeBron. LeBron's the, the best. Uh, he's, he's really, I, I hope we appreciate this because this is a, probably a top five all time player. And it doesn't matter if he wins a championship in Cleveland um, to determine that. Now, he probably needs to win one or two or three to to cement his place as the greatest player of all time, but he's one heck of a player, and, and he's put up one heck of a performance in the postseason. Yeah, I could I could talk about LeBron forever. As you know, we've discussed him a lot, but I'll, I'll leave it there. Thank you so much for taking the time. 
Yeah, thank you for having me. That was Adi Joseph, Deputy Editor of The Sporting News. You can follow him on Twitter at Adi Joseph, A-D-I-J-O-S-E-P-H. And final guest is Ian Levy of Fan Sighted, and our conversation runs about 20 minutes, and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, thanks for having me. Good to be here. So we, we have the finals matchup. I think we all expected before, like, a week ago. What are your initial thoughts on Cavs versus Warriors again? It's exciting. It's I think it's going to be very different, obviously, than last year, and even probably different than their regular season matchups. Cleveland's just playing so much better than they were earlier in the season. So I think it's good. We sort of finally get we, what we thought we were going to get last year. We finally get to sort of see all these matchups play out over an entire series and sort of really watch the strategic battle among all these interesting pieces. Yeah, and we talked about how the how the series changed last year, and I think the biggest part of that wasn't Kevin Love. It was Kyrie Irving having a fabulous Game 1 and then getting injured and missing the rest of the series. So I think having him is going to change the dynamic significantly. Yeah, I mean, he's another guy who can get his own shot and, and handle the offense and sort of allow uh, LeBron to be used in some different ways. You know, if Irving's not out there and LeBron's playing with Love or without Love, there's not a sort of tremendous difference there. Um, and it, I think it'll be good to just sort of see Kyrie on that stage. He, you know, his game one was so incredible last year, and he played, like, really good defense on Stephen Curry and sort of felt like, yeah, I don't know, some sort, of, uh, some sort of breakthrough or breakout. And so it'll be nice to sort of see him have a chance to follow up on that. And one of the other big changes is the starting two guard. Shumper, last year, his basic job was stop Clay Thompson, and now J.R. Smith is probably going to get the lion's share of those minutes, which I feel is going to have a, a meaningful impact on how Cleveland defends. Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, Smith and Shumpert, I thought, did a really good job in the uh, in the Atlanta series, chasing Corver around the three-point line, communicating off the ball, sort of keeping open shots away from him. Obviously, both Thompson and Curry uh, present a, a similar challenge, but to a much more significant degree. But yeah, and, and Smith, he just sort of seems more stable this year than he ever has in the past, both his defense being more engaged and his offensive decision-making, his shooting. You know, he's always sort of been like boomer bust, and uh, he seems like he's been a little more uh, sort of shooting, shooting right in the middle this year. Yeah, I think that's true, and it's so important to the Cavs that he kind of reached that middle ground of still being confident and everything like that, but also being diligent and not making as many mistakes, because what's parallel, parallel among many between Corver and Thompson is that any gaps that you create are pretty reliable buckets for them. Yeah, I mean, they don't need much space. Anytime they get even a, a sliver of, of open space, they're going to usually make you pay. So the Cleveland defense is going to have a, uh, a a much slimmer margin for error than they've had in, in any of the other series. You know, the job they did on Corver was, was pretty remarkable, and I don't think they got uh, enough credit for, um, I mean, I can't remember what it was, but it was like for the first three games, he only attempted like four three-pointers, um, which was, was crazy. And it wasn't because his teammates were shutting him out. He just wasn't open. He just wasn't getting his spots in the offense. But all of the other counters that Golden State offers, even if you know, even if they were able to defend uh, uh, Curry or Thompson off the ball the way they did Corver, all the other counters that Golden State has are just so much more dangerous. The Cavaliers are going to have to play, you know, essentially perfect defense on almost every possession, or they're going to get burned. Yeah, that's a really good point. And thinking about the idea of perfect defense, for me, reflects back on the Western Conference Finals that just finished. How did that affect the way that you're thinking about the Finals? 
made the Warriors seem mortal a little bit, which is sort of, uh, uh, from a narrative standpoint, it sort of uh, adds a level of juice to this a little bit, you know, like not having them just sort of seem invincible and invulnerable walking into the series. I think the Cavs probably will, will have some things from that series that they can try that they can use against Golden State, but they also don't have the same kind of defensive personnel um, that Oklahoma City did. They don't have, uh, especially in the front court, um, you know, Love and Fry give them some offensive firepower that Oklahoma City probably could have used, but they're not going to be able to defend the way uh, Ibaka or Adams did. And so, you know, some of those things that we saw Oklahoma City expose, Cleveland it just probably doesn't have the, the tools to sort of exploit them. Yeah, something that I find amusing about the kind of difference between the two is that if you look at some of the high-profile constituent elements between the two, the Thunder and the Cavs, you see some similarities, you know, star, small forward, star, point guard, stretch four, things like that. But how the pieces fit together in Cleveland is really different, and I think a lot of that's on the defensive end, but I guess it's mostly at the big man spots and just general athleticism. Yeah, and they sort of are able to, the, the Thunder were sort of able to, to go to another level of aggressiveness that really I think the Warriors had trouble adjusting to, at least initially. Um, it sort of knocked them off kilter, and Oklahoma's ability to force turnovers and just ram those those turnovers the other direction into easy offensive buckets. Uh, I don't think Cleveland is going to be, be able to do those things in the same way. Um, I mean, they have athletes on the wing, but not sort of the same kind of like visceral sort of like, I don't know, battering ram quality. I mean, I guess I'm thinking of Russell Westbrook, but, you know, sort of all over the the Oklahoma City roster, there's a lot of sort of like physical force, and I don't think Cleveland um, necessarily has the has that same kind of, uh, that same kind of power in their game. Yeah, Cleveland is has definitely has more of a finesse element, of course, except for LeBron James, who is yeah. the human battering ram. <laughs> but... I, I think that that finesse could do some could do some good things against the Warriors just because they're going to have to be really disciplined on defense, which they you know that's part of their rep, it's part of their mo. But this season has definitely been less consistent than than 2014-15 when they were just this extremely dominant defense that made so few mistakes. And so uh, Cleveland, will, Cleveland will force that in a different way than Oklahoma City did, just because Oklahoma City, you know, at certain points, Kevin Durant's just going to be undeniable. So it'll be interesting to see that, and also to see a more fully realized Cavs offense around LeBron James, who I, I've been a believer in, you know, his, his ability to be the linchpin for an offense forever. And he did, some, of course, some great things in Miami. But I think that in terms of the surrounding talent, just solely on that end, I think this is the the best realized group around his specific gifts. Yeah, and it's interesting because earlier in the season it looked like uh, it looked so all, it was almost impossible like to sort of fit these parts around them. Um, and some of that I think was, was sort of like the emotional and psychological stuff and Kevin Love <clears throat> as talented as he is and places that he struggled, he seems like he brings sort of this I don't know the right word for it. He's kind of like a downer, you know, like he, when he's struggling, it's like they can sort of feel it. Uh, He He, just, I don't know. I think that's the way that I'd say it. Oh, wait, that's a great word for it. Yeah. Like he, and so 
it seems like they have alleviated some of that. I mean, earlier in the year, they looked like a group who didn't really enjoy playing basketball together. They had a little of that Houston Rockets sort of feel to them uh, as as really talented, but just sort of not not engaged with each other. And it seems like that's all gone. And and uh, whether it's you know just sort of the addition of Channing Fry, but it seems like they've sort of figured out how everybody uh, can can slot into their role. And now they sort of have this body of experience to look at, like, hey, if you sit in this role and you uh, are really engaged in that role, you can have a lot of success and we as a team can have a lot of success. And so there's there's no more... Um, it seems like the plan is not hypothetical anymore. Like they're not pitching all of their pieces uh, as sort of a hypothetical role. It's like they've actually had a chance to have it work and work really well and sort of have everybody thrive in, in their little bit parts. And so I think that that sort of goes a long way to, to bettering their sort of emotional health or their psychological health, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I think that's a good way of thinking about it because it is true that it's it becomes a lot less, if you want to use the word stressful, to think about how it's all going to work once it actually has. Because yeah. You, you then, and not only then do you get the confidence in that, but you also get a level of comfortability because the concerns aren't there, and you can, even if you want to call it visualize, your role a lot easier because you've actually done it. And I think that they found a, a, a dynamic that worked. They found some five-man lineup combinations that work, both as the starting lineup but also that unit that does so well at the beginning of the second and fourth quarters. So they, I, I think that they're more in their lane. However, there is also that possibility that while they are a better team, of course, right now than they were for the finals last year, that the combination of players they're using specifically might be more troubling against the Warriors just based on how the Warriors operate. You mean they might be better off or worse off? They might be worse off because they have so many guys who can't defend. Yeah, I think that's. I mean, I think that's the concern. Is they're so much better offensively, and they found this rhythm with Love and Fry. The question is whether they can um, whether they can defend uh, reliably enough to sort of leave those offensive lineups out there. Because as good as their offense has been, I'm still kind of skeptical of the idea of the Cavaliers sort of just out offensing the the Warriors for for you know being able to win four games that way by just sort of outscoring them. And so yeah, it's it's can love sort of muster enough defensive uh, awareness and and uh, engagement to to keep himself on the floor and Fry too. I think Fry's a better defender than Love, but he's not really a rim protector either and he's not fantastic in space either and so those lineups that the Cavaliers have sort of discovered uh, and have really helped them get here are maybe going to be less powerful against the Warriors than they would have been against other teams, maybe even against the Thunder. Yeah, a Cavs-Thunder series would have been really interesting just because they, they have such different strengths and weaknesses. And, and the individual matchups, I mean, Westbrook, Kyrie, or how, which is how they probably would have done that, would have been just amazing. Yeah, it would have been really interesting to see. You know, the, Those Western Conference Finals were so fun because it was like, no matter what happens, it was going to be an amazing story. Like, if the Thunder won and won the finals, that would have been an awesome story. If the Thunder didn't pull through and the Warriors end up winning the finals, that's an amazing story, repeating and Curry and everything like that. And uh, if the Cavaliers, you know, if they're the ones who go through and win in the finals, that's an amazing story, too. So it's sort of watching that, that Thunder Warriors series and being like, this, no matter what happens, we fans are going to win. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, even, I, I didn't expect it to happen, but Toronto would have been a great story. You know, there are a lot of those yeah. in, in the league right now. And one of the 
issues that I've been grappling with for the last couple days is Cleveland looked really good. You know, they only lost two games through the Eastern Conference. They swept two teams that were both good in the regular season. Atlanta was great for stretches of time. But it is true that particularly those two teams, but I would argue the Raptors as well because they didn't have Valanchunas for most of the series, mm-hmm. that they were specifically bad matchups for the Cavs. So how much do you take away from what they were able to accomplish in the first three rounds? Uh, I think it's less about sort of like specific strategic stuff that they showed. Like we were saying, some of these things that they found that really worked are not going to work the same way against the Warriors. I don't think their path to the finals was is sort of as easy as everybody is writing it off to be, you know, like, well, they played in the East, they beat, you know, whoever. But I think the important thing to take away from their from their path to the finals and the games they won getting here is the way that they've sort of gelled around uh, a flow on the court and the and sort of like the way they emotionally seem to sort of have come together as a team, too. And however those things manifest on the court, I think they're really important, and I think the Cavs are certainly better off for them. Yeah, I think that's that's a good way of thinking about it, because they are, they are playing very well, and you know the strengths and weaknesses are what they are. And also, I think it's impressive, regardless of, of kind of the level where you think a team like Detroit is, where I thought Detroit had a good regular season but didn't match up well with the Cavs, Sweeping them is something very different from you know going six games. It's kind of like the idea of point differential. You know, if you if you could if you take care of business as quickly as possible, that gives you some points anyway. Yeah, and I think the nature of their wins were really impressive. I think again they got to take advantage of some matchups and they found some things that really worked well, some pressure points that really worked well. Um, Toronto. Some of their struggles, I, I suppose you could attribute to the Cavs, but some of the stuff with Lowry and DeRozan just struggling, I think it seemed like that happened regardless of who the opponent was. And so, yeah, it's I, I would think less about the specific matchups and more about that, yeah, they found something that breezed through this competition, even if the level of competition was not quite as good as the Warriors. And even if that's not sort of a great statistical indicator of how they're going to do, you know, like they, they have X record with X point differential against these teams, uh, even if it's difficult to sort of project that onto the Warriors, uh, I think it's meaningful that they only lost those two games and that they were so often blown teams out. I think th- I think those are significant even if maybe we're not going to quantify it down to a specific number. Something I'm asking I'm asking different people is outside of let's say the top 3 guys. So, you know, Kyrie, Love and and LeBron for the Cavs and then the three All-Stars for the Warriors. Who do you think is going to play a pivotal role in this in deciding the outcome of this series? I think Barnes is going to be really important. He's got to hit shots, he's got to make plays. I think, assuming that the Cavaliers sort of execute at a really high level and are able to hold their defensive integrity, things are going to sort of cascade down to Barnes, where then he becomes the he becomes the linchpin on, on whether those offensive possessions are working or not. And he's been good. He's been really good at times during the playoffs, but he also has struggled, and he also has sort of these weird brain fart lapses where he's passing up shots or he's missing defensive rotations. So um, if if uh, Golden State can really get a strong series from him, I think that goes a long way. I guess Cleveland, I'd maybe look at Della Vadova. 
he's sort of such a Tasmanian devil, uh, and I do not mean that as any sort of uh, cultural reference uh, because he's from Australia, but he's sort of such a wild man throwing himself through screens, and so uh, I think his defense is going to be important, and there's going to be big moments where Cleveland's going to have to lean on him chasing around Curry, and so whether he can hold up for that and, and whether he can and really play well on offense because he has been. He's been, hitting, he's been hitting big shots, and he's been doing a great job finding guys in the pick and roll. So uh, that's another guy who I think down the roster but could really mean a lot for his team. I'm excited to see how Cleveland uses Delvadova because, I mean, he should be going against Curry a fair amount, but also I would love to see him play a lot with Kyrie because both of them can play on or off the ball. And I think that's the combination, if it were me, that I would have on the floor when LeBron sits for however short that's going to be, like five or six minutes a game. Yeah, they're going to need, when LeBron's out, they're going to need as much extra shot creation as possible out there. And um, yeah, I think I think you're right, probably Delvadova and, and Irving is a much stronger backcourt than uh, Delvadova and Shumpert or even Irving and Shumpert. But yeah, they're going to want as many guys who can, who can uh, sort of get into the teeth of the Warriors' defense as possible. So I guess it comes down to this. What do you ex- what do you expect to happen in the series, and do you have a prediction in terms of winner in games? Uh, I think the Warriors are probably going to win. I'm I'm going to say maybe six games. I'd be happy if it goes as long as possible. I'm not quite ready for the season to be over. Not quite ready to give up basketball uh, for a few months. But I think. Although the Cavaliers, like we talked about, although the Cavaliers are better than they were last year, although they have uh, a a better feel, a better rhythm, and a much uh, more talented roster of available players, I think they also have sort of settled into a style of play that unfortunately uh, lines up with a lot of the Warriors' strengths. And so I think there are some places that were advantages in previous series that are going to be disadvantages, and um, I think the Warriors are going to exploit them. I mean, given how the Warriors bounced back those last three games against Oklahoma City and and really sort of undid some of the things that the Thunder had had taken away from them. Yeah, I would expect the Warriors to be firing on all cylinders. Yeah, I think we're going to see a substantially different Warriors team than we saw against Oklahoma City because OKC was so good at taking the Warriors out of what they do well, and (laughs) that's extremely rare. You know, I've covered the Warriors for seven years, and you don't see that very often. And I yeah. mean, Cleveland did that a little bit last year in the finals, but it was very different. It was tactical more than it was personnel. It was just, you know, that they, they slowed it down, they gummed it up. They also had a lot of good defensive players out there. You know, Del Vidova, Tristan playing more, Mozgov playing a lot. You know, those guys all did did quite well. And they're a functionally different team now. And, you know, it makes them more dangerous. It, it increases their chances of just blowing the Warriors out with a big offensive game. You know, if they're making 50% of their threes in the game, they're going to win. So you'll have that kind of a thing. But the consistency in terms of overall play, just because there, there are so many guys that they can exploit defend, that the Warriors can exploit defensively, is going to put them more in their comfort zone because that's where the Warriors operate during the regular season. It's where they operated against the Blazers, even though they didn't have Curry for most of that series. You know, the idea of finding out what we need to hone in on and just exploiting the hell out of that, that's Golden State Warriors basketball to a point beyond just letting Steph and Clay do what they're going to do. And this series, I think, will mark the return of Draymond Green, who was just... He was more of a sideshow than a star in the in the Thunder series, partially because the Thunder have incredible guys to throw at him, and partially, you know, there was a lot of other stuff going on. And so I think we're going to see more like the second-team All-NBA Draymond Green than the guy that was around the last series. 
Yeah, I mean, he's going to have really good matchups, whether it's Fry or Love or, uh, you know, even LeBron. I think that's a matchup that he really relishes and doesn't have quite sort of like the underlying <laughs> current of antagonism like there was with uh, with Steven Adams. I think he's going to be uh, a little more under control. I think that energy is going to be channeled in, in maybe a more positive direction. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. Uh, anything else you want to discuss or, or do you want to head out? No, I think I'm good. Uh, thanks a lot for having me. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks. Thanks to all three of my guests for taking the time to come on, going in reverse order. Ian Levy is a fan-sided, and you can also follow him on Twitter, at Hickory High, H-I-C-K-O-R-Y-H-I-G-H. Adi Joseph is the deputy editor of The Sporting News. You can follow him at A-D-I-J-O-S-E-P-H. And Kevin Pelton is, of course, writer for ESPN Insider, and you can follow him at K-P-E-L-T-O-N. All of them are producing great material about the NBA Finals, and you should definitely follow up with that throughout the series, especially right now. They have some good preview work up. And I also wanted to take a, a little minute to congratulate a friend of mine who certainly would have been on this podcast if you were available, and that is Seth Partnow. And Seth is one of the smartest people in the business, and he took a position with the Milwaukee Bucks, which was announced this week, and I'm absolutely thrilled for him. And I'm thrilled for the Bucks too, to be honest, because Seth is somebody who I've been lucky enough to, to know for a little while now, and the ability to identify trends and to identify potential issues and then look into them with the depth and the intelligence that he, he can is something that is legitimately special, and I'm so happy that he gets this opportunity. And as somebody who knows him personally, you know, it's, it's great. I can say I'm consider him a friend and I'm so happy to see to see him succeed in that way. So congratulations to Seth. And this is going to be an absolutely great NBA finals. I also will have another Real Jam Radio this week. I was off last week, partially because I was getting over being sick and partially because was busy with everything else. And that is going to be with Eric Gunderson of the Columbian about the Portland Trailblazers offseason. The guess right now is that that will go up. Friday morning Pacific time. Not completely sure on that. Just depends on when I get it edited. Because of course Thursday is game one of the NBA Finals, so that will be a priority. So thank you so much to all three guests. I'm really excited to have all three of them on and to be able to have those conversations. And of course, really excited to see where this finals goes. So if you have any insight for this or anything else, you can reach out to me on Twitter at Danny Larue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. You can also email me at dannylarueNBA at gmail.com. I read everything. I respond to as much as I can. I often respond really late. I have like 20 emails that I need to get back on, but of course there are other things going on. But I, I really do read everything, and I do appreciate it, whether it's you know positive, negative, constructive, whatever, as long as it if it's negative, as long as it provides something that we can actually do better. And I really do because this is important to me and it's important to make sure that the people who are taking the time to listen really get everything they can out of it and trying to do something different. And of course, for this podcast or dunked on, if you enjoy it, please review it at the bare minimum, which is very easy. That's just like a couple of clicks on iTunes. You can also write a review, which helps get other people there and just recommend it, you know, word of mouth to your friends, the people you, th people you think would like it. I definitely appreciate it. Word of mouth has always been an important thing for both of the podcasts I'm involved in. And also, if you want to follow me, you can follow my Facebook page, Danny LaRue MBA, as well. And that combines all the work I do for the various outlets. You can do that as well. So thank you so much for listening. Take care. Enjoy the NBA Finals and make it a great day.
Make your 4th of July sparkle with a little help from your friendly neighborhood Randalls. You'll find great deals on grilling favorites and more. Everything you need to make any summer gathering festive. For a delicious cookout, shop with your Remarkable card and pick up 80% lean ground beef in the value pack for just $1.99 a pound. Limit four packages. And get a sweet deal on fresh strawberries, blueberries, or raspberries, two for $3. Tastier meats, sweeter produce, better celebrations. Randalls, proudly serving Texas families since 1966. One of the best things about Randall's is all the friendly and helpful people. And now, Randall's is looking for more great employees just like you. That's right. All Randall's stores are now hiring friendly new faces to join their team. Ages 16 and up can apply today. If you or someone you know is looking for a job with flexible schedules, great benefits, career advancement opportunities, and even scholarships, then have them stop by the nearest Randall's store for more details. Randall's, it's just better. Make your 4th of July sparkle with a little help from your friendly neighborhood Randalls. You'll find great deals on grilling favorites and more. Everything you need to make any summer gathering festive. For a delicious cookout, shop with your Remarkable card and pick up 80% lean ground beef in the value pack for just $1.99 a pound. Limit four packages. And get a sweet deal on fresh strawberries, blueberries, or raspberries, two for $3. Tastier meats, sweeter produce, better celebrations. Randalls, proudly serving Texas families since 1966.